Welcome back to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. As always, my name is Brandy, and today on the podcast, I'm joined by my friend Danielle Mayfield to talk about Christian nationalism. I just want to acknowledge on the front end that in this episode, we talk about theologies of atonement, uh, what it means to be evangelical and things like that, but we don't go into depth in those and don't seek to do that. I just wanted to name on the front end that I simplify those concepts down, not necessarily to reject them, though some of them I do, but rather because they are not the central content of the conversation. We can nerd out about that stuff another time. We are also just a few weeks away from the national election in the U.S., so if you have not registered to vote and you are able to, please register to vote. It is our civic duty to be involved, and if you've learned anything from this podcast, we're just trying to do better together, and voting is one way that you can do that. So with that, enjoy my conversation with Danielle Mayfield. Well, thank you for being on again. Thank you for being here to chat with us a little bit in this season on Reclaiming Our Theology from American Politics. What a season, Brandy. What a season to podcast about, but what a season to try and live through, huh? Honestly, I feel like that is the reality of every day is, you know what? I made it through today and that's enough yeah. and that is yeah. good. It's a lot. So mm. as we enter in, I am curious, Danielle, what does it mean to be you? Yeah, I think the question is, it kind of fills me a little with anxiety because of how beautifully all your guests answer that. And I think it does sort of shine a spotlight on your cultural background with how you answer that, right? If your immediate thought is like, well, this is what I do. And of course that's me. I want to tell you how good I am and all that stuff. Uh, But COVID-19 has really put a wrinkle in my own view of myself and what my worth is. But I guess today I am somebody who, you know, for a long time has tried to be a good neighbor. I'm a writer. I grew up in the belly of the beast, you know, I'm a pastor's daughter. I was homeschooled almost my whole life, went to Bible college to be a missionary. I eventually got my degree in teaching English to speakers of other languages. And I specialize in teaching literacy to adults who've never had access to education before. So it's a very small niche, but it's like an incredible one. And I've gotten to meet so many amazing people because of that. um, I would say you know, the past four years, my life has changed dramatically because of policies put into place by the Republican Party. You know, I've lived and worked in refugee communities for the past 15 years. And I would say the past three years in particular, there's just nobody coming. Trump is not smart about a lot of things, but he has people like Stephen Miller in his cabinet who are very strategic about dismantling this historic U.S. refugee resettlement program. And, you know, at this point, Um, Even if Biden was elected, it's going to take like 10 years at least of sustained effort to get it back to the levels it was in the Obama administration. And so, you know, I'm kind of like staring that in the face. I can't teach English in person because of COVID, but I also can't really teach literacy in these communities when there's just not people coming anymore. So I think it feels like a vocational crisis, but it could just be the crisis of being an American right now and kind of having to sit in the face like no matter how this election goes in a few weeks like the damage will be decades Mm -hmm. of undoing and do i have the stamina to keep moving forward brady i'm trying but it's hard and the the other part of my life is like writing to white christians which is really hard right now because i'm like you voted for this guy who's ruining my life which is nothing in comparison to the lives of people who've experienced forced migration and are looking for safety um so it's a tough spot yes. to be in. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say a little bit more about that challenge of being an American right now? Because right, I think that 
when I hear it, it kind of bounces around in my head. Or maybe it's like um, a smooth ball hitting a Velcro wall. Like it doesn't necessarily sit because of the ways that we know that American privilege plays out. So when you talk about the challenge of being an American right now, I know that's intersected with your faith. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I'm just curious. Yeah, I think, you know, if you grow up just never really thinking too hard about your cultural background or even like your position of power within your country, you know, I'm a middle class white lady. So that's me, right? That's my people. We never think about this. Um, And especially I mentioned growing up Christian and homeschooled, like we started off with these history books that were just like, God loves America and God ordained European Protestants to discover America. I mean, imagine air quotes around that word, listener, please. Um, And right. And, and therefore like everything that America does is baptized, not just in like normal patriotic exceptionalism, but this is like a theological Christian God ordained exceptionalism. Therefore it's really hard to, fully understand the critiques of your culture if it's really bound up in your religion and your identity Mm -hmm. as one of the chosen people so like I'm doubly chosen not only I'm an American but I'm like a Protestant Bible believing American right so I'm doubly chosen now what's been so helpful in my life is being in a relationship with people from other cultures you know how it started for me with refugees they are able to really (laughs) shine a light on um some of the major blind spots in my own ideology. Uh, You know, I would say that one of the first things was just seeing how hard it was for refugees to thrive in Portland, Mm -hmm. a city I'd always assumed was so progressive and really took care of people. And just recognizing like, oh my gosh, if you have any barrier uh, at all to like assimilating into this dominant culture, like your life is rough. And they had multiple barriers to contend with. And so, you know, it really made me start to ask myself like oh my gosh is my city really a good place for anyone who's not just like me and then very quickly that merged into questions about my my religion too because I was going to school to be a missionary um you know everything was very literacy centric like the four spiritual laws um and again the the group of people I was working with were all from a non-literate culture at that point they didn't actually have a language written down so I was like, well, I don't know how to convert them. Like, And after a while, they were just like, you know, we love you, but like, we're Muslims, you know, like Jesus is great. Jesus is a prophet, but like Muhammad's, Muhammad's it, you know, we love him. And, and I was like, oh no, like my sort of white Western education had taught me to like, if somebody says no, then you move on, right? And you find greener pastures. But instead I felt the spirit of God saying, I want you to hang out. I want you to keep coming back, even though it's very clear they're not going to convert to be a white evangelical (laughs) just like you. But it did bring up that question, right? Like not only is my city good news for anybody who's not just like me, is my religion good news for anybody who's not just like me? And, you know, it kind of became clear that the answer to both of those questions was no. And so then what do you do with that when your idea of exceptionalism starts to be questioned? Sorry, this is a really long way of answering it, but I would say even to this day, I need constant reminders. Um, I know you had Jared McKenna on the podcast recently, just having someone from Australia be like, wow, y'all live in a country where you incarcerate so many people Mm -hmm. like your militarization and your patriotism like american flags and your sanctuaries like your pastors are afraid to say one thing against the military because of the pushback they will experience like 
I mean, we could go on and on and on here, but even just like a few reminders from people outside the U.S., I'm just like, oh my gosh. Yeah, yes. we're exceptionally bad. Yes. Like, <laughs> yes. you know, and maybe we're not the worst country in the world, but that's like a, that's a silly question anyways. It's a silly framing, but it's been such an eye-opening experience to be like people around the world do view us as exceptionally Christian and exceptionally like militarized. I guess is one of the ways to put that. Of yes. course, there's different components to that. There's the racial component to that. There's the sort of classism or like, you know, wealth is being increasingly concentrated in the hands of a few while the rest of people in America self suffer in poverty, all that. But it's definitely taken outside people to remind me. And I, I need those reminders constantly because I was raised for so long in this idea of like, no, we're pretty good. Yeah, we're pretty good. Well, it feels like the irony in what you're talking about, even to go back to you and in, in hang out with your Muslim friends and trying to convert them, is that you were the one who was converted in the process from this kind of white evangelical machine, indoctrination, ideology into this kind of neighborliness that you now talk about and converted from nationalism, extremism and all of those things to this place where you are now. And so as you talk about those things, I recognize you've used the word exceptionalism a lot of times, and that pretty much goes hand in hand with our topic for today. So we are going to talk today about Christian nationalism. And as we enter into the conversation, I'm aware that nationalism isn't just like a neutral love for one's country, and especially not for Christians in this moment. And I also feel sensitive to the reality that there are ways that nationalism and a baseline care for one's country can get conflated into like a zero-sum game where in order to love your country, you have to, or to believe in your country, or to be in any way positively oriented toward your nation, that it is to be a nationalist. And those are not the same thing. But I think I can just tell that there's some rhetoric around being like anti-American and all these different things, which honestly, I'm like, fine, be anti-American. There's many, many, <laughs> many, many things to be anti-American at this point. But I just think that for some folks who are kind of steeped in that culture, have military family, that the nationalism, patriotism, love for country, all of that is really tied together. So as we enter in, I would just love for you to make sense of that a little bit for folks. So can you please define for us, however you want to, what is Christian nationalism? What does that look like? Yeah, I, you know, we, we chat about this, but I'm not an expert in this. I've just been trying to name the tensions of growing up a white evangelical Christian and how we're supposed to think about America. And, you know, these tensions have just been increasingly brought to the forefront since 2016. You know, like many white evangelicals, I was totally blindsided by Donald Trump winning. And, um, you know, I feel slightly ashamed about that, but also like that's my reality, right? That's the place I was coming from. And it's been hard to say like, oh my gosh, the seeds of this have been in my community from the beginning. And in uh, my book, The Myth of the American Dream, I really focus in on this sort of in the last section, which is about power. And I was trying to sort of name what is this drive for power that I see that's so present in white evangelicals. And, and for me, it's like, it seemed clear that it was this idea that maybe, again, how you're kind of talking about nationalism, it could be couched in this positive language like, well, God wants us to be in power because we're going to do the best things with it, right? That's why we want to be in power. And yet, when you look at the Bible, I just don't see that being a huge theme, especially of the New Testament, is please try and seek out every power you can and, and wield it over people because that's how God's going to bring his kingdom. Like, no, it's like the exact opposite of, of sort of self-sacrificial 
neighbor love, right, that Jesus was obsessed with. So for me, I think the past year in particular has really brought forth this idea of Christian nationalism has been what I've been seeing, which is uh, white Christians in particular really long for a government to be in control that will prioritize and privilege their rights and their needs. And they believe with their whole heart that the Republican Party and Donald Trump in the United States is the way to do that, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're all about America. They're all about Christianity sort of being supremely protected, um, you know, taught in schools. And they are really afraid of a world where, um, you know, equity perhaps is demanded <laughs> of them. They're really afraid of economic equity, which they call socialism. They're really afraid of transgender rights and they're afraid of all these things but really when it comes down to it they see this story as from the beginning right america was founded as a christian nation and therefore they need to be wholeheartedly behind those people that will ensure that christians remain the privileged within this society now for me what's so troubling it's like it's clear that we are an unjust and unequitable country Mm -hmm. So what does it mean that Christians are like, yeah, that's true. Let's be on top. Because that's what Christian nationalism feels like to me. And again, this is not very scientific. Sure. This is just me being honest. Like they're voting for the people they think are going to give them and their religion the best shot at Mm -hmm. flourishing. And they're not taking into consideration everyone else. Now, the flips, the really disturbing part of Christian nationalism, right, is that any attempt at accountability is seen as oppression, right? (laughs) That um, cries of lament, cries of protest are seen as inherently like anti-Christian at this point because you're attacking America. And, you know, I'm sure both you and I have experienced this as we've seen Black Lives Matter protests become more public and more in the media. The Christian response has frankly been horrifying. You know, I, I won't even say it's disappointing. I would say it's it's evil. The attempts to silence, yes. to demonize these protests. And then, you know, this whole trend of like Christians being like, let's, let's have these worship services instead where we praise God. And like, to me, people like, like Sean Foyt who are doing these worship services in places like Portland and Seattle and, and across the country where, you know, there have been protests against police brutality. Him holding these triumphalistic worship services in these spaces to me is the height of a metaphor of what Christian nationalism is. Yes. You're literally singing over cries for justice. Yes. You're trying to drown them out by saying God is with us. God is with us. These few white Protestant Christians like God is on our side. Yes. What about everybody else? I'm sorry, Brandy. I'm just... No, that's real. So I literally just got a text message from a friend who lives in or near Moscow, Idaho, where this whole thing is kind of happening on this very ironic local level where this like love for God and then being anti-LGBTQ, pro-Zionistic, pro-traditional marriage, anti-mask, all of those things. It's coming to a really weird head where this community of folks, this church that's, uh, I think, relatively cult adjacent. Then again, what Christians at this point really are cult adjacent. It's kind of hard to say. (laughs) They had a unmasked multi hundreds of people gathering to protest the COVID restrictions. And they went out and they had this big worship service one day where singing hymns unmasked to protest. 
And so the police show up and they're like, hey, you can't be doing this. We're going to have to start citing you. And one of them who's running for, I believe, the, some like position of power refuses arrest and he knows the officer. But the officer is like, no, I really, I got to arrest you, man. Like, I, <laughs> we can't do this. But then this man who gets arrested becomes like a martyr. Mm-hmm. And people are afraid now that he'll become the or whatever it is that he's running for because he's done this religious sacrifice for the sake of nation and freedom and liberty, all to get tied up in this American nationalism. So then they have another protest to protest the way the police treated them. So right, get this. White Christians who have been in what there is there in their opinion unlawfully arrested for gathering for protesting their rights to live are now protesting the police in the name of religious liberty. So that all happens and they did another protest yesterday and Donald Trump just tweeted a tweet about this gathering that says in all caps Dems want to shut your churches down permanently. Hope you see what is happening. Vote now. So he's literally using fake news in the name of Christian freedom to buttress nationalism for the sake of voting. Mm -hmm. This is classically American. (laughs) And maybe uniquely American in this way. I mean, yeah, that's the thing is when we're talking about Christian nationalism, we actually need to go a little bit deeper because the thing that, you know, I think like many people I've spent the past few years being like, oh my gosh, wow, white Christians are such hypocrites. This is like, you know, how much more hypocritical can they be? And I think at this point, I'm finally like, yeah, they love law and order if it's against black and brown people. Yes. The second it's against white people, no. And so that's why they want to vote for Donald Trump, not because, not just because they want to be patriotic. They want an authoritarian regime that will protect them. Yes. Full stop. I don't know yes. how else to say it at this point, Brandy. When we hear them, like you said, all these people yammering on about law and order until the second it comes to this. And so then that's when Donald Trump and the Republican Party has really been sort of saying like, yes, 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 we want law and order for everybody else, but we'll protect you. And yes. white Christians just gobble that up. They gobble yes. that up, Brandy. Absolutely. And one of the things that I have been seeing as of late is really the manifestation of Donald Trump doing that from the beginning. I think it's been one of the more brilliant strategic parts of his campaign is this inaugural address of America first. Because nationalism and patriotism used to be relatively interchangeable, right? Patriotism, love for one's country, pride in one's country. Nationalism for me is when patriotism becomes hierarchical, infused with power and infused with violence. And then Christian patriotism is when you confuse what is Christian and what is American and then marry all of that with power. And Donald Trump has leaned into that with Christians from the very beginning by saying America first, which is the subtext for the people on the religious right, which is Christians first. Mm -hmm, And -hmm. I hear that language. I've heard this. I've heard people say something to the effect of Donald Trump has done more for Christian freedoms than any president in history. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that might be true. But is that actually Christian for that to happen? My question is not, are Christians more free? It's should Christians be that concerned with our own ability to have power? And so I have lots of lots and lots of questions about that and was actually pretty disturbed by Mike Pence in the vice presidential election this last week, who used that strategy of using, he like inserted, it was like, a, it was like an equation. He used a spiritual platitude, like I'm praying or like mm-hmm. some kind of dog whistle for Christians. Then he leaned onto a scare tactic about the left, 
and then he attempted to paint a glorious picture of a Trump presidency. That's exactly what the president is doing with this tweet from this group in Idaho that's literally lying about what they are. He's using a spiritual platitude about churches, he's leaning into scare texts about them being taken away, and he's presenting himself as the savior of that thing, I would argue, over and above Jesus. The thing that boggles my mind, it's like, as much as I rail against, you know, white evangelicals, it's like, that's the community that taught me to love reading the Bible. And, and Brady, I love reading the Bible way more now than I did when I was sort of interpreting it very individualistic. And when I equated, you know, America as the new Israel, you know, now that I've got that bullshit out of my system, um, it's a joy and it's also a terror to read the scriptures and to think about what that might mean for me being someone who is privileged in my own society. And so thinking about like, what do you think the writers of the New Testament in particular would think about white evangelicals who, you know, supposedly the president is one, the vice president really is one. Um, You know, we have so many institutions that are like multi-million dollar. There's so many churches um, who all get tax credits and tax breaks and all this stuff. Like, what would the writers of the biblical text think when they hear us saying we're so scared of losing our rights? I mean, I think they would be like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, yes. we have nothing. Literally, we're writing to you from a place where we have nothing. And, you know, I was listening to some uh, some amazing British podcasters who were kind of talking about how really the first few hundred years of the early church, like basically every big thing that the church wrote down or like the early church fathers talked about was about perseverance. They never talked about evangelism. (laughs) They never talked about converting people. They never talked about trying to get power. It was all just like, just keep going. I know it sucks really bad. I know you have nothing and like, you're actually going to lose even more the more you try and follow Christ in this this Roman world, which is trying to assimilate everybody to be a good Roman citizen. And you being a Christian totally messes that up. Like, just keep going. It's going to be okay. And we're in this together. And I'm just like, I wish that's what white Christians are saying now. We are just 100% on the wrong train, right? Yes. And I do think this is this is a time of a great unveiling that, I don't believe white evangelicalism is ever going to recover from. I would say our 100% buy-in with Christian nationalism, historically, it will not be looked kindly upon. I would say even globally, if you listen to people, even if you don't perceive white Christians as being nationalistic, I'm sorry, the rest of the world does. Would yes. you say that's true? Oh, for sure. Yes. Yeah. All my friends in the from outside of the U.S. keep texting or messaging me being like, are you guys okay? We We're feel not okay. really bad for America right now. And I'm like... We're not okay. I'm like, we're not okay. And we really don't deserve your sympathy. So I appreciate you checking in, but... No, people feel bad for us. It's, it is a real you reap what you sow situation. Oh, but yeah. Oh, Lord, yeah. is it confusing to try to express that when our only framework, especially as people who grew up like in the midst of in the intensity of christian nationalism to make sense of not being the best is it is an identity crisis in so many ways oh yeah because i think that and let's i want to talk a little bit about assimilation because i know you have a lot of thoughts about this because i think there's assimilation in the the general sense that marginalized folks have to do to be in white christian adjacent united states all of that 
Mm-hmm. But I think that there's a way that Christian Christian nationalism forces the assimilation of white folks into power, intensity, and then pulls everybody else into that too. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts about that. Like, what kind of assimilation does Christian nationalism require in order for us to continue this nationalistic ideal that a lot of people are espousing? Yeah, I think it's important to think about when your religion is aligned with like the power of the state, it makes sense that you aren't supposed to critique that. So that inherently is a position that that marriage inhibits uh, people speaking up. So that is a type of forced assimilation that you just mentioned, right? And so I mentioned, you know, some churches have American flags in their you know, places of worship. And that's just like a really foreign concept to anybody who comes from another country, especially another country where there have been, you know, times where religious groups have aligned with power and it always ends horrifically and it always ends with violence. So like the end result of aligning your religion with the state power is violence because you will keep it going for a while if things are good for enough people. And eventually the more people dissent, the more people try and say something is wrong, the state is going to resort to violence and then, you know, they'll use religion to do that. So I think that's kind of where we're at in the United States right now. And it's a really devastating realization, right, to recognize. However, the flip side on that is uh, we are in this amazing time. If you're somebody like me who's like, I am not content with this ideology anymore. I I think it's wrong. I think it's anti-biblical. I think it's anti-Christ. Learning from people who have been refusing to assimilate is like joy and a gift to all of us. And so there's people who, you know, there's there's been faith traditions and church denominations that have been started from the beginning by people who said, I'm not going to assimilate into this. Um, but there's also people who have, you know, tried and it didn't work out. And now they get to tell us what their experience has been. So it is sort of a rich time of listening to people who are like, yeah, I was not able to assimilate, which turns out to be the best thing ever. And then they they therefore can help people like myself move forward because that's the hardest thing, Brandy. It'd be really easy to be like, this marriage of evangelical Christianity with Republican Party politics and the ways they have devastated my neighborhood, they're devastating so many people. Like, in some ways, it'd be easier to be like, screw it all. And yet I can't. I really love Jesus. I really love the Bible. I really love praying. I'm like... It's like some kind of embarrassing sometimes, like how yes. Christiany I am. And yet, yes. uh, you know, the few times I've spoken up about some of these issues that seem to contradict, right, privileging the rights of white Christians. Like I have been called a heretic. I have been kicked out of uh, prominent evangelical spaces that I used to be able to mm-hmm. write in. And so it's funny. They, I always said, like, I'll call myself an evangelical until they kick me out. But like they legit did kick me out. And yeah. um, now I'm like okay (laughs) it's just I'm sure there's lots of people listening who who are somewhere in that muddle too yes absolutely and what it feels like you're articulating in many ways is an identity crisis that cannot accept anything outside of itself that it is this like purified in the most like dark twisted arguably most purity ideology in the evangelical church is dark and twisted anyway but that there's this kind of purit I think we can even go as far as say puritanical approach to 
what it means to be identified as a Christian that is so entrenched in nationalism that we can't pull ourselves from it to actually do the things that Jesus cares about. I've been describing it as religious myopia, where we just like are standing way too close to the mm-hmm. thing that if we were to step back and see the broader picture of Jesus, we would know that we were outside of it. I say yeah. we very generously. I am not one of the we's, but <laughs> Christians are my people and I do feel responsible in some ways to get my people. Yeah, yeah. But I've been thinking a lot about the most classic parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and in the parable, a man is walking from Jer- Jerusalem to Jericho and he's attacked by robbers and they leave him half dead, strip him of his clothes, beat him, and they leave. Then a priest walks by, sees him, doesn't do anything, passes him by. Then a Levite, a religious, right? Uh, the, and so you have like a religious person walks by. And they're like, oh, is he going to stop? He doesn't stop. And then like an uber religious person walks by. He doesn't stop. And then the Samaritan does. And I think there's this question, there's this way that uh, white evangelicalism and white Christians in general will always see themselves as the hero in the story as the good Samaritan who should go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if we're like really in, in it and we're like really trying, we might go, oh, man. I am the priest or the Levite who walks by. And I'm like, no. White evangelicalism and white Christianity, we are the, they are, (laughs) they are the robbers who left the person on the side of the road to need care. And when other people approach to give care, they call that anti-American, anti-Christian, and somehow outside of the way of Jesus while being the robbers themselves who created the issue to begin with and refuse to fix it. And then continue to rob and rob and rob. And when people walk by going, oh, man, we need to do something about it. They call it, like you said earlier, socialism or Marxism or something mm-hmm. wild like that. And so I hear in a lot of, in, in even those kinds of stories and what you're talking about with like flags and sanctuaries and all of that, that it seems like is that Christian nationalism is not Christianity. It's, it's nationalism that's buttressed by a warped religious ideology. And so how else do you see that buttressed by scripture? Or how else do you see that held up by scripture? How do people get there? Because we're going to talk about how to get out of that in just a second. But Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's deeply embedded in a lot of us. And I think we just need to do some extracting of the poison to be able to live more freely. Yeah, I mean, I think you just said it. You said Christian nationalism is not Christianity. It's not biblical Christianity to align your religion with the state and ask the state to protect and prioritize your rights is not Christianity. And we need to say that straight up the way of Jesus. And, you know, I can only speak for people like myself who come from dominant cultures, because I think there's other conversations that need to be had if you are a part of more historically oppressed and marginalized people groups. So I'm talking about people who already have some kind of power in society, like we have to follow the self-sacrificial way of Jesus who gives power to those who haven't had it, who is constantly like, I just love what you said about the good Samaritan story, because I think I'm more comfortable saying like, yeah, the robbers are like the society and like society's troubles. But it's like, yeah, if you're a Christian nationalist, then like you are embedded with your society and the problems that come with it. So yes, like call it what it is. If you want to say America is a Christian nation, then you need to own every single <laughs> terrible thing happening right now as a Christ- a uniquely white Christian problem. You know, I think there's a part of me as I continue to write and try and get my people that hopes that, that Christians will do that. It's just like getting 
hit with a sledgehammer over and over again, though, as I see people, you know, choosing the exact opposite response and, um, and all of that. And I just keep thinking about this phrase that has become really iconic of Black Lives Matter and seeing how um, Christians respond to that as such a terrible thing to say. It's, it's something we're sitting with. If Black Lives Matter is so troubling to you personally, like it's an attack on Christian nationalism. It truly is. Mm-hmm. And uh, people are choosing not to sit with it and instead just um, denigrating this movement, this cry for justice that seems very at home in the Gospels to me. Um, but yeah, it's depressing. I, I feel depressed yes. just talking about this. It's pretty upsetting. <laughs> Well, one of the things I've been thinking about, and, and this was true in my conversation with Nikki Toyomasito, we were talking about how there are things that you have to believe about God to be involved in the American political system, as many people on the religious right are. And I don't want to like get give the religious left a pass, because I think sometimes it just bounces from one form of fundamentalism to another. I think maybe it's way less harmful than the current mm-hmm. fundamentalism that we experience. I'm not going to try to say, like, there's both sides that's some bullshit and I'm not going to play those games. But I focus on the right because they hold the most political power right now. When it comes time to critique the power that the religious left has in the world, we'll get there. (laughs) We'll we'll be there. But I think that there's things that we have to believe about God to hold certain ideologies. And so can you help paint me a picture of what one would have to, what one would have to believe about God? What portrait of God would come forward if we were to, Basically, what I'm asking you to do is to paint a picture of a Christian nationalist God. What would we have to believe about God to be Christian nationalists if we actually were honest about what that would mean? Yeah, I just want to be honest and say, as you're asking me that question, I could kind of tell where you were going. And my eyes like immediately got really teary because the honest answer is like what white evangelicals consider orthodox theology creates that God. And Mm. it's really hard to talk about this stuff publicly. I've already been kicked out, so I guess I shouldn't be worried. Right. But early on meeting uh, my refugee neighbors, right. This, this idea of is, is my religion actually good news for anybody who's not just like me? The truth is no. The truth is most evangelical Christians do believe in a God who only saves a tiny percentage of the world. Um, And so I think it's a really uncomfortable conversation to have. But honestly, our views of, uh, you know, predestination or just our views of what it means to be a Christian and who gets into heaven eventually, it's such a tiny percentage of the world um, that it should be raising some serious questions for all of us. Like we should probably go around in a constant state of anguish um, and These are just a part of the ideologies that you're not supposed to speak out loud, right? But I'm sure many of us have felt these tensions and uh, being in a relationship with people who aren't a part of the chosen really bring up those tensions. And so for me, I've had to deal with this for a long time. And there's two stories I can think of really quickly to sort of showcase like how this tension has showed up for me but I remember a few years ago just talking to my husband about all my best friends are are Muslim women you know in my neighborhood like my in real life friends and I just said like if they're all going to hell like I'm going with them like I want to be with them like I don't want to be apart from them and the thing is is like I'm a pretty I'm not a great person and so that desire I don't think comes from me and I'm like, I think that desire comes from God. Like, if I love my neighbors this much, I can't imagine how much God loves them. And then mm-hmm. I remember a few years ago, somebody asking me this question, just if, if there could be 
one thing you most wish to be true about God, what would it be? Like if, if your wildest dream, if you had a dream about what God would be like and it could just come true, what would that be? And immediately I said that those who have suffered the most on earth would be seated at the table in heaven. And it just like came to me. And I, of course I'm picturing all my friends who have experienced forced migration, immigrants and refugees, that these women would just be feasting in the house of the Lord, mm-hmm. you know, after this, all this horrifying stuff they've gone through in their life. And again, I'm like, that doesn't come from me. I'm just me. And I'm actually a pretty individualistic person because of my background. And I'm really scared of not being orthodox. So I'm like, whoa, I feel like the Holy Spirit is turning me into a heretic. And I feel like, you know, the Holy Spirit just continually is asking me to say, like, I just hope for the flourishing of all. And when we look at scriptures, oh, my gosh, that hope is everywhere. It's everywhere in the Hebrew scriptures, you know, in the Gospels, this this hope and this dream for a world where every single person is flourishing is there. Uh, You know, Christian nationalism only has in mind the flourishing of a few. And that's not good enough for me anymore. And it's super damaging, obviously. And so that's why we need to come get it. But um, it's just not enough. It's not only not good enough, it's just not good. Like straight up, it's not good. Like even though the phrase good enough is... I know, that's too nice. (laughs) When I think in, in that portrait that you're painting, it is a God who is cruel and selectively loving a God that we have to make a lot of excuses for. Like, mm-hmm. to me, I'm always concerned we have to, when we have to make excuses for what God might do in the world instead of just, like, pointing to Jesus and going, well, what did Jesus do in the world? Not how do we justify what we're doing? And the tragic part for me is that it is not only those in power that are dehumanized, and it's not only the marginalized that are dehumanized. It's folks who sit in the middle. It is folks who are given this cruel picture of God and have to make sense of it and end up just in a moralistic therapeutic deism where God becomes your balm to get the sting of God away from you. Like God is both the abuser and the one who tends the wound. God is both the police and the judge and the, right. God is all of those things in this kind of moralistic therapeutic deism. And so I think, yes, there are those with power who, have completely perverted the way of God. And there's the marginalized who are being impacted by that and trying to fight back and resist. But I think for the majority of people who are in the middle, we are given a God that is abusive. We are given a God that is power hungry, that wants and needs things from us, that is needing our defense. Like whenever people talk about defending God, defending the Bible, defending the Mm -hmm. church, I'm like, your God is weak. Your God is cruel. Your Mm -hmm. God is angry. Your God is dominating. And yet somehow we are so afraid of these abstract ideas of hell that just Jesus doesn't even really talk about that we would rather choose that kind of moralistic therapeutic deism over this inclusive, communal, beloved community way that Jesus presents us with that looks nothing like nationalism and that does require us to tear the flags out of our sanctuaries that even tell, takes us to discard our Christian flags and our identifications with power structures mm-hmm. that have constructed this Frankenstein of a God that we say we worship, but really just fear. Yeah, I, I mean, I just love everything you just said there. And as you were talking, I was thinking about how, you know, we don't need to be afraid of historic Christianity, which does leave a lot more room for these mysteries. And, you know, an orthodox position of the early church was, you know, various viewpoints on hell, including like, in the end, all 
shall be saved, like has, has been a historic Christian position. Now, it's not that way in American evangelicalism or American nationalism. And, and the, the origins of that are closely connected to slavery, closely connected to um, Billy Graham and uh, him sort of really popularizing penal substitutionary atonement as like the primary way we view Jesus's life and work. And then let's just jump to today, Brandy, with Franklin Graham, you know, being at the forefront of going all in for Christian nationalism. And maybe I'm making a huge leap there. I don't think I am. I think he's not super different from his dad. I I don't know. I'm just I'm just seeing a line here, right? If you start off with Billy Graham being pretty pleasant but still quite racist and still having a reason to focus on penal substitution atonement, working with politicians, all the way to Franklin Graham, we're just getting more bold about it. Is kind of yep. how it seems to me. Yes. And for those of you who have heard the term penal substitutionary atonement and don't know exactly how to define that, it's essentially the ideology that you suck so bad that God has a legal penalty against you that can only be paid by Jesus's death. And if you believe in Jesus's death, you essentially get salvation and relationship with Jesus in exchange for your sin. And Jesus is the one who dies for you to take the penalty that you couldn't have for yourself. It's the most prominent atonement ideology in the West. And just so we're clear, it's a pretty modern ideology. Mm -hmm. uh, some people could say the 17th century. I think it's been more popularized in the 19th century. But Billy Graham did build his ministry around this penal substitutionary atonement mm -hmm. ideology that relies on the notion that we are all so terribly, terribly bad and destitute that God couldn't possibly love us if God didn't kill God's own son. And what that does is it circles back to what you were talking about earlier, Danielle, about violence. Mm -hmm. That penal substitutionary atonement normalizes the kind of violence that we then entrench into Christian nationalism, which justifies doing everything that is necessary to make sure that Christians stay on top and in what we would call like righteous space. So it makes sense that we would see federal agents in a Christian nationalist society coming in and violently dealing with protesters because violence is the tool that we've been given by our atonement ideology mm -hmm. to deal with people's quote unquote sin. So if we see a community of people that is predisposed to sin in a way that we believe is inherently bad, I think about when people talk about black on black crime, the only way that we feel like we can solve that thing is by using violence against those things. When Jesus doesn't use violence against violence, Jesus uses love and sacrifice and enemy yeah. love specifically. And so I feel very concerned about that that thing that you're saying right like yeah. that this like billy graham franklin graham thing they're not that different but we want to uphold billy graham like he's this great oh, hero yeah. oh yeah but it's mostly because he's just not as bad at the forefront as franklin graham but i think that franklin graham really holds the ideologies of and maybe not billy graham himself right i think there are some redemptive whatever i feel like i need to defend white it's christian a complicated people. legacy that's is. fine and all yeah. of us are complicated in our yeah. in our things but franklin graham became what he was given he he was nurtured into a type of Christianity that is manifest and born the fruit that it does now, and that is not neutral of his dad. Yeah. And so I'm not just going to pull those things apart for the sake of placating a, an evangelical Christian hero, <laughs> but I do yeah. think that those are super connected to nationalism because of the type of conversion without discipleship. And so I think that that is the core of a lot of Christian nationalism. Yeah. So I mean, we're probably going off on a tangent here. For one, I want to say when Franklin Graham posts on Facebook, it's like some of the top performing Facebook posts like in the world. So he's very mainstream Christian. Don't we cannot try and say he's an outlier. He's not. Uh, for two, you know, like talking about 
these things where people might be like, why are you talking about <laughs> atonement theories? <laughs> but like, they really do matter. And you brought up part of why it matters. The other part is like, if that's your primary relationship with God, well, first of all, we have the whole Billy Graham thing. Like once you're converted, then you're great. You're good. You're golden. You're in. Therefore, you don't really need to critique like how you live in the world quite as much as maybe you needed to. Uh, but for two, like, I think if penal substitution atonement is your main way of viewing Jesus's work in the world you have no vision for what comes next because you know American evangelicalism is is dying it will grow smaller it's still violent we still need to be vigilant against it all that stuff but how do we envision what's next well someone like me I'm not able to do that very well because I'm scared of retribution I'm scared of punishment because we've been doing some bad stuff you know (laughs) and um we can see how our criminal justice system is modeled after this you know Christian idea of punishment for your sins so how do we envision you know here I'm sorry I'm not the podcast host but I want to ask you how do we envision moving forward out of this when people like myself we need help we need help to be able to envision like are we just going to get punished for eternity because of what we've done with Trump? Like, are we just, are we just dead? Or is, is white evangelicalism sh- kaput? <laughs> Sorry, that was an intense question. <laughs> I mean, my first response is, I do not think that white evangelicalism can be saved. Yeah, I do not. I do not think it can, and I am not going to try. I tried for some years. I've seen people who've tried their whole lives. I do not believe white evangelicalism can be saved. Because Christian nationalism is as though you took separate distinct ingredients and you bake them into a cake. You cannot unbake an egg out of a cake. You also cannot unbake the ideologies that we have from our from white from <laughs> white ring. <laughs> Close enough. Right wing Christianity. You can't you can't unbake them. We can we can deconstruct and we can unlearn, but the structure as people but the structure itself cannot be saved and should not be saved. Mm. It has always been violent from its origins. So why would we save something that was corrupt from its foundations? It's like trying to rebuild a bridge on top of a shitty foundation that's already cracked and that was built on, right? Like Jesus gives a parable for this. He says like, don't build your life on sand, build it on a rock. And what we're trying to do with white evangelicalism is continue to build on the sinking sand of oppression and violence and dominance in a way that Jesus would never do. I will nuance this by saying that I think that evangelicalism itself can be redeemed because the core tenets of evangelicalism are not the same core tenets of Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. For those of you that want to nerd out for a second, right, the tenets of evangelicalism at their core are conversionism, so the idea that once you start following Jesus, something about your life changes, crucicentrism, that at the cross something in world history changes toward a redemptive arc, uh, Biblicism, that the Bible is authoritative in some way. It doesn't say how it's authoritative, but it says mm-hmm. that it gets to have authority in some way. And then the last tenet is activism, that those three prior things would lead to us doing something in the world. So I think that that can be saved. So I think for people who are trying to escape Christian nationalism disguised as Christianity or following Jesus, we can lean into the tenets of evangelicalism and not leave all of those things behind in the name of some kind of pure version of the thing that we were told was pure to begin with, because that doesn't, that's not going to work either. And so I don't really know exactly how to make sense of where we go from here, but I think that saving white evangelicalism is not the way. I think that it will continue to lead to our deaths. I think it is speaking to 
I think it is being false prophets. I think it is saying God is going to save you if you change. I think it's God is going to do. And in the scriptures, when people come and prophesy in the name of the nations, the true prophets of God who are on the side of the marginalized almost always, like I think about Amos, like a counter prophet from, I believe, Judah comes and says like, they can't handle the prophecy that you're bringing against us. We can't handle your critiques of our economics. We can't handle, handle your critiques of our violence. And the king has asked you to fucking stop, like stop. And Amos is like, yeah, bruh, I'm gonna curse you. Terrible stuff's gonna happen to your family. Get out of here. And we never hear from that counter prophet again. And so I think that if we are attempting to be prophets of or to the redemption of a corrupt system, we will end up like that system itself, which mm-hmm. is destitute and destroyed. But if we choose to be prophets who speak, and I don't even want to call us prophets, but be people who do prophetic activity, who speak out against violence and injustice for the sake of the marginalized, I think we at least, even if we don't save our own lives or our own well-being or our own comfort or our own inclusion in this kind of evangelical space, I think we do preserve our relationship to Jesus and our love for Jesus in a more, to use a word you've used a lot, orthodox view of the Christ and of Jesus. So I don't really know. I don't know. But I think those are my general thoughts. <laughs> I, I mean, I love it. I think I think I am totally in agreement with you. It's just, it's interesting. I was re- reading Walter Brueggemann this morning, actually, and it was so challenging him talking about, um, you know, in the Psalms and in the prophets, like the the ones who were more aligned with like the state and like with King David and King Solomon, you know, all of this God is in the temple and he's with Israel 100%. Like those Psalms tend to talk about God's steadfast love. Like God will always love Israel. God's always with Israel. Everything you do is God ordained. Um, and then in comparison, the prophets, they don't talk about God's steadfast love. They always talk about justice and righteousness mm-hmm. and like God's steadfast love is not with you. He is not baptizing everything Solomon is doing. He's not baptizing everything David is doing. Like, no, like God is saying, where's the justice? Where's the righteousness? Like, where are the marginalized people? Like, how can you keep them in your mind? And so it's just this really challenging idea for me, you know, Again, I don't want to equate myself or my background with Israel. That's a problem we've had in the past. But at the same time, like when I do see these Christians being like, I'm just praying for our president. I'm just praying, you know, for God to come back to the White House and God to favor our nation again. It's just like, oh, my gosh, that's like that's what all the false prophets did like all throughout Mm -hmm. scripture right is god is with us god needs to come back and protect us if only we elect this one person where in in, you're right in in biblical prophetic literature it's always popping the bubble of power saying things suck things suck specifically for those you've oppressed and you're not listening to them and so we are going to keep bugging you and i too have that thing where like don't don't call me prophetic don't call me that's just like it's not great especially if you come from a sort of a savior complex background like all that's terrible at the same time it's fine for us to say like like prophetically speaking truth to power is i'll use that word again a historic christian practice that all of us can lean into um and actually we should be and you've already said like you're going to do that to democrats i'm going to do that to democrats Uh, they're not in power right now so we're talking about trump um but that is a part of our 
of our legacy that we get to lean into. We speak true to them. And that truth, especially for me, that truth is not about my rights. It's about how the most marginalized in my neighborhood are doing. And Randy, they're not doing good right now. (laughs) I'm just going to be honest. So we have to keep speaking up. Yes. And I think that one of the theological ideas that I think we are required to engage with is, is a theology of place. Because I hear in your story this very localized sense of place and the way your theology functions in your neighborhood. And what we see in the Psalms and in the prophets where David and Solomon and even Saul in, in, right, in, the, Samuel, in the books of Samuel, what we see is that they are trying to locate God very specifically in a nationalistic framework. Yeah. That they're trying to, right, God is, God is never wanting to be in a temple. That is not, that is like a compromise that God makes. God, when we first see God in the scriptures, is spirit floating around the entire earth. Then we see God in the pillar of cloud and fire among the people, traveling where the people go, amongst the people. Then the tabernacle is like a, okay, yeah, you're going to build a tabernacle so God can be there. But the tent, but the tabernacle itself is a tent that you can pick up and move. They are transient people. So that thing has to move every time that the people move. And then there's this thing, right, where David wants to build a temple and God's like, no, no, no. And Solomon picks up that mantle to build a temple to locate God in a nation where then God is trapped as the symbol of that nation. And really, it feels like God is held hostage by the oppression of Israel in the story. And so it's no surprise in the Jesus narrative, I think it's specifically, I believe, about Matthew's narrative in the Gospels of what happens on the cross, right? Jesus dies and the veil is torn and we're, and we'd interpret that as, oh, we now have access to God again. And I'm like, oh no, I think that is God escaping the temple where God has been trapped among the powerful and the religious <gasps> for too long. Whoa. I think it is God escaping that space to be among the people. And then we get into Acts, right, where we see that the spirit has come to be among individual peoples to create beloved community. And so the danger of nationalism is that we trap God as a tool and a pawn of our religious systems in a way that God wants to escape in the crucifixion of Jesus. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That was, oh, wow. See, I totally, in my upbringing, you know, viewed that the tearing of the veil the way you just kind of upended so that was really powerful and you know we're totally jamming on the same wavelength because i was reading as i said i was reading brugamon and he talks about the destruction of the temple being this singular moment for the jewish people to have to wreck you know grapple with their ideologies which god is always going to protect us always going to be on our side and then boom it doesn't happen and then they'll spend the rest of their life kind of grappling with that now brugemann and a lot of other white male theologians talk a lot about 9-11 being that moment for americans and i'm and and this is even like 2014 he's talking about 9-11 being that moment i'm just like oh i think 9-11 has nothing on now uh being the moment and I don't know if you want to, t- t- you know, tell me your thoughts on that. But even I would say 2016 was a huge deal. I, I, I kind of think this upcoming election is going to be that that defining moment for white evangelicals where we have to grapple with and say, like, God's left our temple. We tried to go in all in with Christian nationalism. It didn't work. And now, you know, they're going to have to grapple with the global and local response to Christians being once again on the absolute wrong side of history. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And to me, it just makes sense that in a nation that enslaves people as property, that we would enslave God as property for our own political gains as well. Right. That is what 
gets people killed as they take the Ark of the Covenant, right, is that they use God as a political and a war pawn. And so I think that part of the redemptive arc is saying, like, we don't get to own what God's doing in the world. right? And we need to be really careful when we're interpreting what God would or would not do unless we are doing so specifically specifically through the lens and teachings of the person of Jesus. Mm. And if those don't align, if our practices don't align with the lived personhood of Jesus, then I think we've got it wrong. If our interpretation doesn't align with Jesus, then for Christians, we've got it wrong. Oh, yeah. We've got it wrong. That's... I don't know a lot, but that's definitely one thing I've I've held on to. Yes, let it's... Jesus be our lens. Yeah. Let Jesus yeah. be our lens. So if Christian nationalism, you know, is all of the things that we've said, which sounds really, really terrible mm-hmm. and really destructive and, as I will say over and over again, antichrist, mm-hmm. then what is the other way? What would we hope for? What would you hope for, for folks trying to pursue a more Jesus-centered expression of relationship to country? Ooh, uh, you know, for me right now, just, you know, trying to be someone who is really rooted in my place, right? I have seen almost nothing but bad news, you know, in the past four years. And so for me, it's really important to engage in these historic Christian practices of lament and repentance and confession and really letting myself say things are not great for people in poverty in Portland. Things are terrible in our school district, which has like the lowest rates of, you know, digital literacy and digital equity and trying to do school at home this year. It's just when I think about all that, like, some of the kids in my neighborhood are facing right now and what a trash heap of a year this is for them educationally, but socially, emotionally, physically. Um, I, I don't, I have zero feelings of patriotism, Brandy. I am feeling grief. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling lament. I am feeling all of these things. And it's important for me to sit in that and not rush to, Oh my gosh, but if we like Biden, everything will be great. Cause I don't actually, I do think there's going to be some policies that he has plans for that are going to make a difference, honestly, like pretty quickly, but um, it's not going to undo all of this. And part of the thing with Christian nationalism, and we've kind of like addressed it, but we haven't said outright is like, when you believe God is in control of everything in America, that therefore makes everything in American history God ordained, which means Mm -hmm. genocide of Native Americans, which means chattel slavery, which means the extreme income inequality that we're facing in Portland today. It's all connected. And so uh, part of my journey is to learn how to mourn, lament, articulate the grief that I've supposed, I've, you know, as a good white evangelical, I'm supposed to not say it because that was God's plan. Um, So I guess that's where I am. And then, of course, listening to people who come from communities or cultures that are so much better at expressing grief uh, is great. And then moving forward, you know, people from more collectivist backgrounds are where it's at, man, like Mm -hmm. to kind of combat this extreme individualism and this longing to prioritize my own rights, even with my own family. You know, I'm a middle class white lady. It's like it's amazing the mind traps you get in trying to be like, I need to do what's best for my kids. It's like, do I? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> do I yeah. or, or like who's defining best you know like yes. I just need help and so you know people yeah. from collectivist communities are incredibly more equipped and resourced to talk about the common good which is something I would like to see more people yes. like myself be able to talk about yes absolutely and that idea of the common good has been so substantial for me 
well, the last four years really, but really the last eight is asking like, what does it mean to be about the common good? And I do not think that people who live in the United States, I've said American a lot of the times, I recognize we are a part of multiple Americas, South America, right. Central America, and we call ourselves the number one America or whatever. <laughs> but people who live in the United States, we are not reliable narrators. Mm. And we need to be seeking perspective from outside of the U.S. Mm -hmm. in order to see ourselves rightly and to know what to do. We need to have global perspectives on what persecution is, on what oh violence does, on what world history can teach us, on what global implications U.S. politics have in the world, about what democracy does or does not or can or cannot do. I think we need that global perspective to guide us and to shape us and to decenter the U.S. as... God's favorite chosen people, because that is not true. Right. It is not biblical. It is not real. But because we believe it, we forced a reality where we will do everything to protect that ideology. And I will call it a word I don't use all that often. Sin. Ooh. It is sin. It is separation of us from God, of us from each other, of us from the earth. And I am not trying to sin against God and my neighbor by being so culturally and nationally myopic that I cannot or refuse to choose to do the Jesus way that might be being spoken to us, that is being spoken to us from people outside of ourselves. I, I mean, I love it. And I will say, like, one of the few bright spots, I think, for me, uh, even though there are issues with social media and all that, but it is a wonderful time to learn from people who are different from you, who do come from other countries, or even people like, you know, who maybe grew up in generational poverty in the U.S. Like, mm -hmm. there's just more access to follow people. You know, I went to Bible college where my entire syllabi was white U.S. males, right? And so just saying, like, I get to read other books now. Like, yes. I get to. It's exciting. And, and we all have that ability to follow other people and to learn from them. And so, you know, there's not a lot of bright spots about COVID-19, but I'm like, we do have access to social media. We can yes. be learning from other people right now. This is something we can do. And even your podcast has really enabled me to find voices I have not heard of before. And it's yeah. a gift. It feels like a gift from God, honestly. I'm so glad. Well, I am really grateful that you've been on for this conversation. I think that this is a particularly challenging one because Christian nationalism really has become a principality and a power more than just an ideology. And so for folks who are listening, if you have felt tension in your body or things that feel adjacent to fear or terror, I think the pastoral word would be to breathe, mm. to give yourself some space and to recognize that when we are engaging with, and I'm going to sound as Christian as I am right now, mm -hmm. when we are engaging with powers and principalities and dark things, it will affect us. And it is not a spiritual or noble thing to be unaffected by darkness or evil mm -hmm. and i think that's part of what we see in the religious right is a numbness to darkness and evil disguised as power and control and so if you feel things be gentle with yourself care for yourself breathe talk to folks lament and cry and mm -hmm. grieve find music mm -hmm. that works for you go watch an episode of the office or the great british baking show for the millionth time do what you need to do to connect to yourself because a lot of white evangelicalism abstracts us from our own feelings and our own realities mm -hmm. and so i would charge us not to do that. And so Danielle, I, again, thank you. Is there anything that you want to plug, anything coming up for you that you want people to know about? Uh, yeah, you can, you can read my most recent books called The Myth of the American Dream, Reflections on Affluence, Autonomy, Safety, and Power. I, you know, I wrote it before COVID-19, all this stuff. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't know though, there's probably other books you should read. <laughs> <laughs> if you're somebody 
somebody who maybe comes from more of my background and you just have a toe or a foot outside of it it's it's a maybe that's who it's for but yeah I actually I don't know how soon this podcast is coming out but Brandy you and I are going to do a few speaking online speaking things together so if people yes. want more of this dynamic they can find out and I should be sharing that stuff on my Facebook and Instagram or Twitter I'm on there as DL Mayfield great and I will link to that in the show notes and this will be coming out just before then so you can find us Sunday the 18th mm-hmm. for our first one together so yeah. yeah thank you so much for your time yeah thank you I mean, I say the same thing every week, but thank you so much for listening. If you want to help us out, please subscribe, rate, and review. It goes a long way to helping others find the podcast, and that's been really awesome for me. If you want to help financially to keep this thing going and sustainable, please join our Patreon at patreon.com slash brandynico. And as you have questions, continue to send them to reclaimingmytheology at gmail.com. And with that, as always, let's reject some Christian nationalism and do a little better together.